Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the <clears throat> ninth uh, class of our eight-class session uh, on <laughs> our, uh, on the Lace of Beleriand. Um, no, no, no. We're not doing one more week. This is totally it. We are absolutely finishing this week. There's, ri there's absolutely no doubt or question about it. You'll see. Um, uh, so I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to getting through the rest of stuff today, and uh, uh, and I am of course especially excited to uh, finish this and do start our next book. Of course, as you recall, we have um, uh, we've already elected the the next book. We talked about it briefly last time. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. We will be starting this class in two weeks from tonight on the 16th of September. Um, the uh, website giving the web page giving the whole uh, uh, class details and stuff is now up. Um, so if you want to go into the mythguard.org and go to the academy tab, um, it's sorry, it doesn't appear there, but it actually is there. Trust me. Um, uh, and uh, see, there it is. Um, <laughs> and uh, so you can go and you will see the whole class schedule. This is the link uh, for our sessions uh, and the entire class schedule. The class goes on for quite some time through December. It's going to take us to the holidays, basically, because uh, uh, not only are we going to do ten sessions on the book itself, uh, nine uh, weeks with uh, a bonus sort of buffer class I've scheduled there in week ten, but then we're going to do a three-week discussion of the BBC miniseries uh, after that, because I'm really interested to see how they've adapted this book. Um, I, as I've been saying, this is the first book that's been elected that I'd never read before. I'm still reading it for the first time. I'm a little over two thirds of the way through now. Uh, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm in book three, um, and uh, and I have or volume three, of course, as it's called. Um, and I've uh, I, I've really been loving it. I'm so looking forward to talking about this book. So uh, get reading. Of course, it is very thick. So get reading. Uh, you see that uh, there's like a hundred-ish pages or so on average. Um, in the class sessions, they're a little bit shorter than that at the beginning, um, and then a little bit longer than that as we move through. So, again, you're going to definitely want to get started reading ahead. So, um, uh, and yeah, okay, and you, so you can see how to how to how to navigate to that. So be sure to share this with your friends. Uh, it must be a great time for people. I know not everybody's a Tolkien fan. I know that you know the ways of Beleriand are probably not the cup of tea of every fantasy fan out there. Um, but I'm sure there will be a bunch of people, especially with the recent miniseries and stuff, who'd probably be interested uh, in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. So it'll be it would be a fun opportunity um, to uh, to sort of share this with your friends. So. That, of course, is announcement number one. Uh, two, just a reminder, Midmoot is coming up. We're now a month away from Midmoot, the Mid-Atlantic uh, gathering, the Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium, um, which is coming up on October, Saturday, October 3rd. If you're anywhere in the Mid-Atlantic region, come to the University of Maryland on October 3rd. Um, it is... Uh, it is like the the most fun you can legally have for ten dollars in the state of Maryland. Uh, I, I promise, uh, especially on a Saturday. Um, it's, it's ten dollars is the registration fee. It's really cheap. Uh, you'll get to uh, you'll get to meet Verlin Flieger, hear her talk about uh, the story of Kulavo, which is being published soon. Um, and uh, and I believe we have just uh, received confirmation that we should be able to get copies of the book to sell. This is a big deal because it's not going to be released in America until the spring. Uh, 
So if you come to Midmoot, you can get the opportunity to get your copy of Cooler Vogue signed by Verlin Flieger, and uh, you can have it months before all of your friends and neighbors and be the envy of your whole neighborhood. So um, uh, that should be really cool. Um, but the, anyway, so again, that's October 3rd. Make sure to uh, to mark your calendars for that. Um, and that's it. You know, a couple other uh, sort of program stuff. Uh, you know, as usual, on Friday afternoon this week, I have my uh, my Lotro streaming session. Uh, I've been really looking forward to the one that's coming up. Uh, you can see uh, my little Hobbit burglar fighting shoulder to shoulder with Radagast. Well, kind of fighting shoulder to shoulder with Radagast. It's not exactly how it works out at all times, uh, but uh, but but we'll see that. So uh, um, I, you know, and it's such. I have to say. Uh, especially after the depiction of Radagast in Peter Jackson's film. Uh, meeting Radagast in Lotro in the game is uh, sort of a relief, really. Um, uh, no bird poop whatsoever, uh, no bunny sleds. It's uh, uh, much more like Radagast as I'd always imagined him. Um, and uh, and next week, we don't have a Silmarillion film project episode this week, um, but we do have one next week, so we'll be before I see you guys again, since we have uh, our break next week between classes. Um, but, uh, but anyway, the next session, which again, that's a week from this coming Friday at 10 a.m., uh, we're going to be doing the Aino Lindale. We're, we're, we're finally going to be planning out episode one of season one, um, and figuring out how are we going to do the Aino Lindale? How are we going to work that in? How are we going to set that up, uh, with our, uh, our, our, our young Aragorn frame narrative, um, that, uh, we were discussing last time. Um, people have been chomping at the bit, uh, to talk about the Aino Lindale and how to, um, how to depict the Aino Lindale since, like, we first floated the idea of this project. So uh, uh, make sure to uh, get your Aino Lindale suggestions ready uh, for uh, uh, for next time. Okay. With uh, our, those announcements behind us, then let us uh, turn back to the text and finish things up. So I have just a couple things I want to look at uh, in the primary text of the Lay of Lathian, that is, we didn't get to the confrontation with Morgoth last time. And so, of course, that's where I want to begin. Um, and uh, let me reduce this. Thank you very much for your service window. Okay. Um, the first thing, of course, that I want to talk about uh, about the confrontation with Morgoth is where the confrontation with Morgoth begins. That is how Tolkien chooses to contextualize that passage. And by that, I mean the flashback to Fingolfin that we get. Um, we get this long and quite dramatic um, uh, flashback to Fingolfin's challenge against Morgoth and Morgoth coming out. As Christopher Tolkien, of course, points out in the commentary, you can see how much of the description of the fight between Fingolfin and Morgoth in um, uh, in the published Silmarillion is derived directly from this poetic version of it. I mean, it's very clear that this is sort of the version of that story that Tolkien had in his head and that the prose is kind of a synopsis of this poem and you can even he hear it following the language uh, and even in some places the rhythms of this depiction uh, in some places. Um, so, you know, for that reason, of course, even just, f it's it's a passage worth looking at just because it's, you know, this sort of the passage that lies behind one of the awesome moments of the Silmarillion. Um, but I'm especially interested in thinking about it sort of thematically here. I, my, my question is, why? Why go here? I mean, yes, it's awesome, and, and, and that's, you know, I'm not saying that's not a sufficient justification. I'm not saying it needs justification exactly, but my question is, what is the effect of putting it here in this context? Um, why do we... I mean, it comes, remember, as they're just approaching Angband. So as Luthien, as Baron and Luthien 
come up towards Angband. We sort of pause to recall the last charge of Fingolfin and his uh, ultimately fruitless uh, duel with Morgoth at the gates of Angband. Why? Why does he go here? What is he establishing by doing this? I mean, why recall in such vivid detail? I say recall as if reading this poem we'd have known that before, right? But why give us this story, um, you know, flashing back historically to this earlier moment before we get Baron I mean, and they could have just gone in, right? Um, it's not necessary for plot-related purposes. I mean, it kind of comes into the story a little bit. Like, you'll remember, when they're actually approaching the gates of Angban, they have to be really careful because the ground's really uneven there because the, the big, huge divots that grond the hammer of the underworld, um, you know, shattered into the, into, the, into the face of the earth are still there, right? So you gotta be, you know, you, you got to kind of watch your, uh, you know, your step um, leading up to the gates of Angban. But I mean, like that's a pretty small detail, right? I mean, that's it's not like the plot really pivots upon that. Um, so you know, there are some places where we see him going back and filling in backstory because it is really important. Like we need to know about the Silmarils and the oath of Feanor and Feanor's sons, right? So when he goes back and he tells us that story, that's important, right? Because it it uh, it underlies the whole Nargothrond story and the you know Kelgorm and Kurufin's. Um, reactions um you know that's uh, uh, it, it's important so he sets that up right you know there, so there there are some places where it's it's sort of much more obvious that um um uh sort of much more obvious that uh that we needed to really know we don't, but it's not obvious that we need to know the fingolfin story it seems more thematically linked, right? That is, um, we are about to get the story of the great... Um, uh, we're about to get the story of, you know, one of the great confrontations with Morgoth, arguably... Mm, no, not arguably. Without question, the most successful confrontation against Morgoth ever, right? Um, so... Recalling Fingolfin seems of obvious relevance in the, in the relevance is obvious in the sense that that too was one of the other most famous direct confrontations, one of the only times really, certainly in Middle Earth, that is not counting the times when he was hanging out with him back in Valinor, one of the the only time that we see, you know, one of the one of the Eldar standing up to Morgoth, right? Um, okay, so it's parallel vaguely parallel. I mean, I say vaguely because, of course, the circumstances are so different. Um, Luthien's not challenging him to single combat, right? Banging on the gates. She's trying to sneak in. Um, so, uh, so okay, so we have the parallel of this, you know, the, the great personal defiance of Morgoth. Um, but what is, um, what's the effect of it? That is, what does he achieve by telling us the story of Fingolfin and how it ended. I mean, like, you know, to put this in really crude terms, is this a hopeful precedent, right? Because remember, when we get this is when they're still approaching, right? So it kind of informs our own thinking as we see them coming into Angband, right? So does it boost our hope for their success? Uh, seeing that Fingolfin, though he died you know, was able to, you know, Morgoth is not unassailable, right? Um, or d does it reduce our hope, 
right? As a, as a museo, even Fingolfin, though he accomplished more than anyone, could, yet nevertheless he still got crushed, right? So, um, uh, you know, I mean, does it suggest it could go a different way, right? I mean, Fingolfin is, you know, he's uh, he's he's been pushed over the edge, right? Before he goes here, it is an act of desperation and even of madness for him to come and challenge Morgoth to single combat like this. Um, is that the context that we're supposed to be taking, right? Do we see, um, are we being led in some sense? You know, do we take, does the, is the poem leading us here to, uh, to see Baron and Luthien's quest in that light, right? That it's almost as mad and desperate as, uh, as, as Fingolfin's attempt. You know, that we could take a couple different perspectives on it, right? I mean, even the story of Fingolfin, we can, uh, we can take and, uh, and look at it as sort of uh, you know a, a glass half full or a glass half empty uh, kind of uh, kind of situation. Um, let's look at uh, one particular passage. And, and please do keep you know if you guys have thoughts and suggestions on these on these questions, please let me know what you think. Um, I want to look at the depressing bit. Oh well, okay, it's not just depressing, but the 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 end of the of the battle here. Thrice was Fingolfin with great blows to his knees beaten. Thrice he rose, still leaping up beneath the cloud, aloft to hold star shining, proud his stricken shield, his sundered helm, that dark nor might could overwhelm till all the earth was burst and rent in pits about him. He was spent, his feet stumbled, he fell to wreck upon the ground, and on his neck a foot like rooted hills was set, and he was crushed, not conquered yet. One last despairing stroke he gave, the mighty foot pale ringil clave about the heel, and black the blood gushed as smoking fountain flood. What's the effect of this? I, you know, again, you can go like, well, okay, and so ended the greatest of the elf kings, and uh, uh, if uh, Fingolfin didn't accomplish anything other than the, uh, you know, making his heel bleed, then what hope does anybody else have? You could take it that way, right? Um, uh, you know, I think, um, uh, Karita, your question is a really... Um, is is a good way to think about it. Krita says, Morgoth wins, kinda, I suppose, so does it make Morgoth more scary or less? It's a really interesting way of thinking about the question, right? Again, I think, on the one hand, you can say, see, look, like, give him your best shot, he can take it. I mean, it's not like this is an equal fight that he just, you know, manages to win, right? Unfortunately, the bad guy won this time, right? No, it's it's very... I mean, when he puts his foot on the neck of Fingolfin, his foot itself is, uh, you know, we're told, like a rooted hill. Um, this is not an equal fight. The best that Fingolfin can hope to do is to wound him, and he just wounds him in, like, the ankles. He can't even reach anywhere else. So, um, there's... Uh, so, again, you could say... I mean, Karita, I think it could be argued that it makes him seem more scary, right? Because it shows how futile it is, even... Being somebody like Fingolfin, even being as 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 brave as he was, and it shows how 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 ultimately useless that is. That's I think uh, one thing that we could take. But I'm not, but I'm not necessarily convinced that that's the only or even really the primary effect. I mean, I think you could say it makes him less scary, right? Um, you know, like he's he, look, he's bleeding, right? He uh, um, he is not completely unassailable. Um, yeah, good. So let's see uh, so, some of the comments that you guys have made. Um, 
Good, good. Let's see. Um, all right. So I'm scanning through your... Um, um, yeah, yeah, Sarah King, I too, I, 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 even when I was speaking just now and talking about him stabbing his heel, I couldn't help but think of Genesis chapter 3 either, but I, I agree, that's, we, it's, that, that's not relevant. No, Fingolfin is not Satan, uh, this, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, so that parallel, not relevant, I'm quite convinced it's not relevant, but I'm glad you brought it up because it was kind of in the back of my head too. Um, good. Mike Zett says he thinks it makes him less scary. This battle showed a vulnerability in this strongest of the Ainur. Yeah, he does not come out and just be like, how dare you? You know, and squish him like a little bug. He, he, he's got to work for it, at least. And there's something there, right? Um, uh, yes, they're unequal, no question. Yes, Morgoth is far more powerful, but they do get on the same stage, right? Um, even if he's only hitting his ankles, he's hitting him. Right, um, and even though he can't possibly kill him, he can make him bleed. Right, um, he can hurt him, and even the you know the reference to the fact that he limps thereafter. Um, that's uh, that I think is also uh, is also important. Um, okay, let's see. Um, all right, I'm sorry to look at a bunch of comments here. Um, good, Michael, I agree that this passage emphasizes Fingolfin's courage and power. Um, and I think that that's an important point. I mean, just to back up from the question a second, to ask the larger question, how is it exactly that you can tell the answer to that question, right? I mean, we could just kind of say how we feel about it, right? You know, and go the, like, totally subjective route and just be like, well, this makes me think about this, and so therefore I think that... But what evidence is there, right? How can we decide what it is that the text has to say? And I think that, um, Michael, the observation you make is a really good one in that direction, right? The question is, what is the emphasis of the text? What does the text keep bringing up? What does it draw our attention to here in this passage? And, Michael, I think that's the reason I was really drawn to this passage and chose it out of the whole Fingolfin passage, um, you know, the whole Fingolfin segment to look at. Because I think that it is pretty telling what the poem really comes back and emphasizes, right? It's not emphasizing Fingolfin being defeated. It's emphasizing Fingolfin's courage and his refusal to give in, right? Um, Thrice was Fingolfin with great blows to his knees beaten. Thrice he rose, still leaping up beneath the cloud, aloft to hold star-shining, proud his stricken shield, his sundered helm, that dark nor might could overwhelm... Notice, even just there, one, two, three, four, five, six lines I just read, right? Um, The fact that he is beaten to his knees with great blows three times takes one and a half lines, right? And then we get four and a half lines talking about how he can, you know, how he rose to his feet. And then the description of him, you know, and his holding up his star-shining stricken shield, right? Star-shining stricken proud shield, right? And his sundered helm. But despite the fact that his shield is stricken and his helm is sundered, dark nor might could overwhelm him, Right? That's clearly the emphasis in that beginning passage, right? So the emphasis then in that bit is plainly on his defiance, his refusal to submit to darkness, 
his refusal to submit to despair, even when he's plainly beaten, right? Even though we're told he was spent in three words, right? We don't take, take a lot of time to emphasize how beaten up he is, right? Just how much he's persevering despite being beaten up and being spent. Um, he fell to wreck upon the ground. And then even then, right, even as he fell, falls to wreck and the, the foot is set upon his neck, which is like a... a, a not only a an, an 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 open image, but a but also a kind of symbol of his suppression, right? Even of his slavery, of his captivity by Melkor. Um, Melkor is obviously the one in control at that point, with his foot upon the neck of his opponent, um, and he is crushed, not conquered yet, right? We still we still rise up, um, although he is he's down, he's pinned, he's crushed, but he's not yet conquered. Right, one last despairing stroke he gave, and then we're going to spend four more solid lines describing the pain that he's going to give to Morgoth, in even in this act of final despair. Right, so um, this is, I think, where we can plainly see the emphasis of this particular passage, and that seems to me a pretty good indicator of what we're supposed to be taking out of this. So in the end, what does this mean for Baron and Luthien? I think it means I think it's encouraging or even it's a like a kind of a like a kind of piece of advice, right? Uh, Simon uh, Orozco makes a really good point that he thinks the fact that Morgoth even had to resort to physical confrontation shows that he had fallen far uh, from where he once was. Um, yeah, yeah, no I agree. I think that you can easily make that argument uh, for the overall confrontation. Um yeah, yeah, Nancy, good. We do have, uh, Nancy Fosberg points out that we have an interesting anticipation of what's going to be happening, right? That is, that the the primary, the, you know, the imagery, the star shining and the, you know, the, 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 the sort of the blackness and darkness of Morgoth and the, the small but defiant bright light of uh, of the one who's standing up to him, that does seem to be some foreshadowing, right? We do have that kind of, I mean... You know, you could say like, well, okay, light and dark imagery. That's not exactly unique, but 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 still, I mean, I think you know the the way that this serves as a setup, I think is is certainly pretty clear. So we can see that. Um, so again, it really prompts the question: Okay, since Fingolfin and Luthien do seem to be linked, since this does seem, in some sense at least, to anticipate um, where uh, you know what we're going to get with Luthien. What does it emphasize about Fingolfin? And I think it's clearly not, you know, his madness and despair. It's plainly his the stubbornness of his courage. Um, uh, so anyway, I think that's um, I think that's uh, that's that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, good. Okay, so let's look at uh, let's look at the actual confrontation. So first, I want to look at Morgoth's very creepy speech. Uh, that he delivers himself of uh, before Luthien uh, does her thing. Now, my question here that I want you to be thinking about uh, and uh, be typing on while I read this passage is, and I mentioned this last time, what does this show us about Morgoth's desires? What do we learn about Morgoth? About what he wants, who he is, what he's like? Think back to the conversation we had was it last week? Week before? Anyway, that 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 orcish creed that uh, Thu was quizzing uh, Dungalef and Nereb about. Um, remember, um, you know the, the that that sort of orcish creed that we talked about, and I was a little bit disappointed by it. Remember that. Anyway, um, 
think about like the nature of evil, what makes Morgoth tick. Um, those are the kinds of questions that I want to um, I want you to be thinking about as we uh, um, uh, as we go through his speech here. Okay. Why should ye not in our fate share of woe and travail, or should I spare to slender limb and body frail breaking torment? Of what avail here dost thou deem thy babbling song and foolish laughter? Minstrels so- strong are at my call. Remember, this, so she's already offered to sing for him, right? To, she's offered her services as a minstrel before him. One thing to notice, by the way, um, those of you who did the Book of Lost Tales class with me will, will remember that in the Book of Lost Tales, in the tale of Tenuvio, Tenuvio is downright coquettish with Morgoth. She actually flirts with him. Um, and, you know, because she, she has that sort of coy line where she says, like, my dad is going to tell me whom I can marry. I'm going to make my own choice about whom I want to marry. You know, and, like, it doesn't explicitly say that she bats her eyelashes at Morgoth when she says that, but it totally sounds like that's what she's doing. Um, and whenever I read that in the tale of Tanufio, I'm like, she did not just do that. Anyway, she doesn't do that um, in, uh, in, in, in The Lay of Lathian. She has not flirted with Morgoth, but she has come and offered her services as a minstrel. She's offered to sing for him, right? So anyway, so his this is that's the context of him saying, um, "Of what avail here dost thou deem thy babbling song and foolish laughter?" Um, uh, good. So okay, um, good. All right. Sorry. Um, all right. Sorry. Just fixing one thing quick. All right. So I'll carry on. Minstrels strong are at my call. Yet will I give a respite brief, a while to live, a little while. Though purchased dear, to Luthien the fair and clear, a pretty toy for idle hour. In slothful gardens many a flower, like thee the amorous gods, are used honey-sweet to kiss, and cast then bruised, their fragrance losing under feet. But here we seldom find such sweet, amid our labors long and hard, from godlike idleness debarred, and who would not taste the honey-sweet lying to lips, or crush, oops, sorry, or crush with feet the soft, cool tissue of pale flowers, easing like gods the dragging hours. Ah, curse the gods, O hunger dire, O blinding thirst's unending fire, one moment shall ye cease, and slake your sting with morsel I here take. Whew, okay. <laughs> this, I, I, I find this speech pretty gross. Um, but uh, but let's see if we can kind of unpack this here. First, your observations. What do you notice about this? <laughs> Nancy's observations are, ew, ew. Yeah, I, I totally, I'm totally with you here. Um, uh, okay, the, um, and yes, Carita, I totally agree. Crush with feet, the soft, cool tissue of pale flowers is most gross. I absolutely agree. That's the, uh, that's the, uh, um, that's, pretty much the worst. So, okay. Um, now, Brandon Minnick asks a really good point. Brandon, and I, I, I want to hit this first, because it's, it's, it is kind of a side point, but it is kind of cool, isn't it? Brandon uh, points out that he says, wait, wait, Morgoth has minstrels? Right? Is this the only reference we have to evil musicians? Right? That's not a kind of a normal thing. I mean, we do get, for instance, I mean, who is contesting in magic and in song with uh, with Felagun. So we do, and it's 
evil people can sing. Um, but you're absolutely right that that's really unusual, right? Um, thinking back to the description in the music of the Ainur, um, one would think that, well, I mean, so what, though, like the minstrels of Morgoth, they all just kind of sing the same tune in unison, right? That's, that's, that, that, that's how it went before. They can't be very good. Um, but, um, remember that's uh, the way that the music of Morgoth was characterized, right? Like a, uh, like, like a few, uh, harsh trumpets, you know, blaring on, on, on the same notes. Um, that uh, doesn't sound like very excellent minstrelsy, but Brandon, I agree that that's by itself there an interesting point. Um, okay, so what do we, what do we, what do we see? What do we get here? Um, first, he is talking about the gods the whole time, right? Now, don't forget that. This you know this is still in the time you know by the time we get to the certainly by the time we get to the published Silmarillion, um, really even by the time we get to the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien is going to cease calling the Valar gods. Um, he'll still use that word occasionally, but cautiously, as in the published Silmarillion where he says men have called them, you know many have called them gods, um, but he doesn't just casually talk about the gods out in the West, which he does in the Book of Lost Tales and in and in his earlier writings, um, so. Um, Morgoth is definitely talking about the Valar, right? Um, but what exactly, um, what exactly is his point about the gods? What does he say about the gods? Um, he, uh, he, good, yeah, um, Arthur, yes, uh, he casts the gods as slothful, right? Yeah, who use a flower like Luthien and cast it aside while he's working and not idle. Absolutely, that's a really important point. Let's 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 go backwards for a second here and look at that again. Um, uh, okay, he says uh, right. He talks about though. Uh, um, he's gonna he's gonna let her live for a little while, though purchased dear. Right, you're gonna pay for it, but I'll I'll let you live for a little while. Um, a pretty toy for idle hour. Which sounds ominous, right? Um, uh, and, you know, I don't know, when I, when I get to that line, a pretty toy for idle hour, I'm like, please don't expand on that. But he does, right? But but he doesn't do what I expect him to do, right? What I would rather expect him to do at that point is, to, uh, and what I rather dread his doing is sort of expand upon that, right? Let me give you some more details about the horrible, horrible things I'm going to do to you, right? Um but that's not where he goes, right? Instead, he starts saying these, like, spiteful and irritated things about the Valar. In slothful gardens, many a flower like the the amorous gods are used honey-sweet to kiss. The gods carry on like this all the time. The amorous gods, right? Um, and cast then bruised, their fragrance losing under feet. The Valar indulge themselves, and it amorous, that's a pretty plain word. He's talking about sexual indulgence here. He's talking about, like, Greek god style, right? Like Zeus, we're talking, we're, th- we're thinking like Zeus and Apollo in, coming down and ravishing a mortal. That's how he's characterizing it. And he was like, this is how the Valar carry on like that all the time, right? The amorous gods are used to, well, they find something as pretty as you, yeah, they'll come down and they'll, 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 they'll kiss you, and then toss you aside, right, when you're sort of used up, and 
and you've lost your fragrance and you're bruised under feet, right? Um, like a flower that's cast off on the ground. <laughs> Sarah King says, yeah, that's Mandos all over. Yeah, isn't it? Um, now, Michael, you're right. We never see the Valar acting in that way, even in the Lost Tales. Um, there is... I mean, and correct me, anybody, if I'm wrong, there is zero evidence of this. Um, of course, no, right, no, Kate's right. Kate Neville says, wait, there is one example. Melian! Her mom, right? That's the only example that we get of uh, one of the gods who goes, you know, trawling among the mortals. Um, and of course, it's a personal row. It's a, it would be a personal dig uh, on her mom too. Um, but uh, yeah, Sarah King exactly he says, "Oh, poor bruised flower thing." That's not a fair characterization of what actually happened, right? Um, but. Uh, um, anyway, I, there's I, there's no there's no evidence. We don't see them acting like this. Morgoth, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Morgoth is lying here, right? Um, we never get any evidence of this. Um, but you notice, why does he bring this up, right? Is it just to slander the Valar? Well, notice first he he depicts himself as comparatively virtuous, right? They carry on like this all the time. Oh, those Valar, right? Those those uh, uh, you know those uh, those those amorous Valar just you know casting away bruised flowers all the time. Um, meanwhile, here I am working my fingers to the bone, right? I don't have any time for any such carryings on, right? They're idle over there, and their idleness leads them to moral dissipation and to cruelty at, uh, of others. But here I am. Industrious, hardworking, diligent Morgoth over here, right? I got. Meanwhile, I got a business to run over here while they're over there lollygagging in Valinor. Um, that's his initial move um, to not to, to 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 take them down and put himself up um, in contrast. Now you sort of wonder, like, why does he go there? What point is he trying to make with Luthien? I mean, uh, uh, Kate, I love the idea that it's like a dig at, at her mom specifically, right? But because uh, I mean, there, of course, it's um, it's definitely uh, it's definitely re- relevant to Luthien. But but otherwise, I mean, like, what's he trying to accomplish? Like, is he is he seriously thinking that Luthien is going to be like, oh, what the gods act like that? The Valor? Oh, that's awful. Um, yes, no, you're right. I really admire you, Morgoth. I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine it going down like that, right? Um, uh, so again, what, why is he think? Well, it's interesting that we see him. Um, characterizing himself as not only just the superior in power to the Valar, but uh, sort of having the moral upper, you know, high ground, basically. Um, I don't carry on in the shameful way that they carry on, and anyway, I'm busy over here. Um, um, Nancy says perhaps it helps him uh, admire himself, and uh, Sarah King is also suggesting this kind of self-justification. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, exactly. I think it's it does seem to be he's, he's it sounds to me like he's talking more to himself than to Luthien here, right? Um, and um, but Simon, you're right. Uh, Simon says it strikes me as projecting. He's describing what he would do uh, if he had the chance. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's in concocting this lie, and and, and I do have to conclude that it's a lie about the Valar. He is. Um, uh, he sounds like he's kind of making them in his own image uh, there to some extent. But anyway, okay, so let's let's carry on. But here, 
you know, here in the hard-working place, we f- seldom find such sweet amid our labors long and hard. Rarely, we almost never get the chance to rape mortals around here. Because, um, you know, it's a, it's a hard life up here in Angband. From godlike idleness debarred. Persecuted, too. Right? You can tell how persecuted we are based on the, f- the comparative paucity of opportunity to rape mortals. Right? I mean, seriously. How, how horrible is that? Um, because then he lingers and who would not taste the honey sweet lying to lips uh, or crush with feet the soft cool tissue of pale flowers easing like gods the dragging hours but it does sound good doesn't it? yeah maybe I will indulge myself a little bit right a little, little honey sweet taste on the lips little little crushing of soft cool tissue with feet afterwards and it's <laughs> so foul but um but but he seems to savor the prospect of each one of those things equally right at first in his depiction of the valor he's making it sound like oh and then they just toss you off and you know and you get incidentally trampled under feet but no 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 it turns out the trampling under feet is like the ultimate consummation of the of the act right first uh First, you uh, you taste the honey, and then you trample them underfoot, and it's it's awesome. Um, uh, yeah, so we've definitely uh, um, moved off the moral high ground here. Morgoth has, but again, notice how even here he's almost like, "Hey, yeah, you know, maybe I'll conform myself to the way the, the gods are, right? Maybe I'll act like the Valar, since they do it. It sounds good." Right, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll, maybe I'll, 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 uh, I'll do things Valinor style here, briefly, um, and James, yeah, there's our echo back to Fingolfin again about the trampling underfoot, right? Absolutely, um, that can't be a coincidence, right? Um, we've already seen, you know, a uh, a bright and brilliant, beautiful elf trampled underfoot, literally by Morgoth, uh, just recently, um, and of course we saw how that worked out. For him, right? Um, that that flower still had a thorn that he pricked his foot on when he tried to stamp on it, um, and so that seems to be, uh, yeah. And Yana was 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 uh, saying the same thing. Absolutely, um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then. Oh, curse the gods! Oh, hunger dire! A blinding thirsts! Uh, oh, blinding thirsts! Unending fire! One moment shall ye cease, and slake your sting with morsel I here take. Notice how he shifts there at the end. I mean, the syntactic shift. Who's you, and ye, in this path, in the in that in those last couple lines? Who's he? He's not talking to Luthien. First of all, because he's using ye, which is plural, so we know he's not talking to Luthien. Yeah, he's talking to his hunger and thirst, Nancy, exactly. Uh, he's, 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 yeah, oh, blinding thirst, unending fire. So he's like, you know, at first he's like, I'll curse the gods, right? Oh, hunger dire, oh, blinding thirst. He's addressing them now. Uh, uh, the unending fire of his blinding thirst one moment shall ye cease and slake your sting with morsel I here take. So he's gonna he he now wrecks it. We see something completely different coming out here at the end. Right? Um, Before this, he has seemed premeditatedly wicked. Also gross. Um, But 
not exactly rationalizing, but manipulative, right? I mean, he doesn't have to... Again, what advantage is there to him uh, as far as this confrontation with Luthien goes, for him to try to be like, oh, it's not my fault, I'm just being like the Valar, <laughs> right? I mean, he doesn't have to do that. Um, uh, she's in his power. Um, but he uh, but he does do that, right? Again, and, and, and as we were suggesting, it seems to be, at least in part, self-talk, you know, that he's, uh, you know, the way that he's characterizing himself in the Valar, it has to do some with his expression, sort of his own his own image, right? One of the things that I think we get from this, he... I find, although it's creepy, I find this passage much more interesting to think about um, than the Orcish Creed that Thu was doing. Remember, the thing that I disliked about the Orcish Creed was that it was just so simplistic, right? I mean, at least that's how it seems to me, um, that the orcs are meant to love evil for evil's sake. And that's a hard thing to sell. And it's not how Tolkien depicts evil most of the time. I mean, nobody that we see fall into evil in The Lord of the Rings falls into evil just because they really like evil. right? Even Sauron was not so. Nothing is evil in the beginning. Even Sauron was not so, says Elrond in the Council of Elrond. That's more sort of the Tolkienian model, and we don't see that model so much in um, in Thu and the Orcish Creed there. Here, we do see more of that, I think. right? We can see this sense in which I find it very interesting that even Morgoth seems to need or want to characterize himself as the good guy, right? Um, because, again, notice the way it works, right? First, he's like, I'm industrious and virtuous while they're corrupt morally, right? So I am morally superior, so he still cares about that, right? He's not like, corruption, yay, right? That's, that's not what he does. Um, so he's like, uh, they, you know, I am virtuous and they are corrupt. And then he's like, but I shall follow their example. In other words, it's not my fault, right? I mean, I, they, they've done this maybe I'll do this too, right? Hey, I deserve it, right? I, I deserve, you know, if this is how the gods act, then I guess I'm justified in doing it, right? Um, uh, you know, and again, like that, that impulse to sort of rationalization, which again seems so unnecessary from a sort of an objective standpoint, um, but again, very suggestive that he himself feels that desire or need to justify himself. And then, but then he shows that he does like, again, the fact that he likes the crushing the soft, cool tissue. That's the phrase. I think if I had to... If I had to identify the word in this whole passage that I find creepiest, the apex of creepiness for me is cool. That is that tactile image. Like, he's imagining... uh, You can see him, like, picturing how her flesh will feel when he's stamping it under his feet. That's the part. That's the tactile image there that uh, that d- really does it for me. Um, that's the that's the complete creepiness factor. <laughs> you know, Sharon thinks it's tissue. Okay, right now I can see it. There, there's the sort of the the dehumanizing of that, right? Um, yeah, I, I can see that. I don't know though. I still think uh, cool is still what uh, uh, what does it for me. But um, but anyway. Um, that is to say, remember again when Thu was talking about um, when Thu raised the prospect of Luthien going to Morgoth, and Baron scowled, right? And then Thu's like, "Ah, Mister 
Mr. Theoretical Orc, right? Why do you scowl at the thought of, of uh, <clears throat> you know, that something, uh, that something pure should be defiled? <clears throat> we should be all in favor of defilement, right? Um, and we can see that Morgoth is indeed entirely in favor of defilement, and that it is the defilement of, um, you know, it's the fact that the pale flower is soft and cool um, that makes him like the idea of crushing it, right? Um, so, uh, um, yeah, Nancy says she found soft uh, really creepy for similar reasons, and yes, I can I can agree with that. Um, but uh, but anyway, um, uh, so oh, an easing like gods, the dragging hours, the dragging hours, right? Oh, and it's not going to be quick, right? Uh, I, I'm going to be crushing with feet for dragging hours, man. Anyway, um, horrible, 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 horrible. Um, so again, we do see him loving defilement. We do see him savoring the pain he's going to be causing. But it's not just simplistic, right? It's not just like, because I am evil, I like evil things. Um, we can see how this is a degradation, right? Even the that image of the amorous gods, you know, kissing the honey-sweet flowers, right, is itself a corruption, right? There, that... Not that the Valar actually act like that, but even if, even if theoretically, the Valar did act like that, that's a corruption, right? Again, with Thingol and Melian, we see how it really happens, right? And it is certainly not just the, the uh, you know, sort of the the raptus of the flower. That they're, they're, it's not it's not a rape, um, pretty emphatically, uh, not a rape um, with Thingol. Though technically, I mean, I guess in the old medieval definition of raptus, that is like a kidnapping. It kind of is, right? He's taken away, and his friends can't find him, um, so he is kind of. Uh, kidnapped, you know, there is sort of a raptus into fairy uh, in the way that, you know, in a sort of a traditional fairy tale way, um, but not in the honey sweet kisses sense of of of, of, of raptus. But anyway, again, that characterization of the Valar is based upon that. It's, it's, it's clearly a corruption, right? That is the love and desire of the Valar for the children of Iluvatar twisted, right? Um, and then he takes that already twisted thing and twists it again, right? It's like, no, let's get to the trampling. That's the really good part, right? Um, so, but again, it's not just, hey, I like defilement because I'm a defiling kind of guy. We can see how it is a perversion, how it's a twisting of that, which is sort of originally good. Um, but, um, and, but then at the end, we see what really drives him, right? We've got the rationalization and all this imagery, and then just his hunger and his blinding thirst, right? The unending fire which should, and I forget which one of you was saying this, Joyce uh, uh, was saying this earlier on. Remember, of course, his wounding himself um, with the pain of the Silmarils, right? Um, So certainly unending fire should quite likely remind us of the unending fire, the pain that he experiences from that. Um, so what we see in the end is Morgoth a slave, right? Morgoth a slave of his own passions. Um, him being uh, uh, beset with dire hunger and, uh, and, and unendingly burned with blinding thirst uh, and hoping only... You know, in the end, all he's doing is just hoping for a moment to make those things cease, right? To slake the sting of those things with this morsel, even if only briefly. And that shows us ultimately the weakness, right? 
Um, and oh, how wonderful. I mean, that in a horrifying way, Arthur. Um, Arthur says, so Luthien can release him from bondage. Yeah, in a really creepy sense, right? We see Morgoth himself a slave, and seeking release, even if only brief release, right? That's not, of course, what's going to happen or what's supposed to happen, but what I think it does show is, again, how pervasive that idea, um, the way in which release from bondage begins to look through this poem as like the core metaphor for evil and suffering. Evil both in the sense of evil done to someone else, um, but also even turning back on those who commit the evil um, and to show how they themselves are in bondage. And we see this. We see Thu in bondage and her and Luthien's pity on him. We see Karkaroth um, in bondage and her uh, having pity on him um, when she puts him to sleep. Um, we see Morgoth here in slavery, too, to his hunger, dire, and blinding thirst. Um, so... I mean, I, in that way, I do think it is connected to the release from bondage. But we can see, of course, he has no, he, and of course, especially if the Silmarils are part of his uh, pain threshold problem, right? Him being bereft of the jewels that he holds most dear would also be a kind of release from bondage for him as well, right? Uh, you know, he 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 loves the Silmarils and you know desires the Silmarils and wants to keep them. Um, he'd probably be happier, better off without them, right? Um, uh, not to mention, of course, the idea of the liberation of the Silmarils themselves. Um, okay, so uh, that was disturbing. Let's look at, let's look at Luthien's response. Uh, she sings her song. All eyes were, clen- were qu- quenched, not quenched, were quenched, save those that glared in Morgoth's lowering brows, and stared in slowly wandering wonder round, and slow were in enchantment bound. Their will wavered, and their fire failed, and as beneath his brows they paled, the Silmarils like stars were kindled, that in the reek of earth had dwindled, escaping upwards clear to shine, glistening marvellous in heaven's mine. Then flaring suddenly they fell, down, down upon the floors of hell. The dark and mighty head was bowed, like mountaintop beneath a cloud. The shoulders foundered, the vast form crashed, as in overwhelming storm huge cliffs in ruin slide and fall, and prone lay Morgoth in his hall. His crown there rolled upon the ground, a wheel of thunder. Then all sound died, and a silence grew as deep as were the earth, the heart of earth asleep. Okay. Um, yeah, Nancy loves the W's, slowly wandering wonder around. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, uh, Carita really likes will wavered and fire failed, the alliteration there. Um, yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Um, I want to uh, raise a point that uh, uh, Steve Holly had emailed me about this, and Steve, I saw you mention this uh, earlier on uh, in the um, um, in the uh, comment box tonight. Um, the, I think it's a really neat way of looking at this. Steve was uh, reading Tolkien's letters earlier this week, and um, 
uh, thinking about one of the World War II letters that he wrote to Christopher when Christopher was in the Royal Air Force uh, in South Africa, and um, he Tolkien was talking about how how much he he hated the bombing campaign. He hated the uh, the Air Force, basically um, the RAF. I mean, he hate the RAF. It's a little unfair, but he was very very uncomfortable um, with. Uh, planes and, and bombings and things like that. Um, and he characterized it, um, that whole, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the allied efforts in the war, um, as attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring. It's a, a famous moment, a famous letter, uh, when he's talking to Christopher and, 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 and talking about that. And Steve Holley was reminded of that passage, uh, in the letter when he was reading, um, uh, rereading this bit this week, uh, noticing that Feanor, in a sense, falls into this trap, right? When, uh, uh, you know, Morgoth proclaims himself and claims his right to everything and steals the Silmarils and claims them for his own, Feanor basically tries to fight fire with fire, right? Tries to fight back against that, claiming that claiming them for his own, right? And swearing this dreadful oath, and then seeking to bring war and, and uh, you know, sort of beat Morgoth to his knees and uh, take his Silmarils back from him. And, uh, you know, so Steve Hollies says that's, it's kind of like attempting to conquer Sauron with the ring. Um, but, um, but of course, but Steve goes on to note that Luthien doesn't do that, right? What we see, even in a sense, what Fingolfin did was like that, right? As awesome as Fingolfin was, as brave as he was, as, 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 as noble and inspiring and wonderful as was his stubborn courage, uh, even in despair, um, nevertheless, at the end of the day, um, going up and beating on the gate and, and, and striving to, uh, um, you know, pummel Morgoth into submission, you're, you're on his turf when you do that, right? Not only literally, but metaphorically as well. Um, Luthien, um, Luthien doesn't do that, right? Luthien's approach is different, and what does Luthien do? What Luthien is all about, right? What does Luthien ever do in this poem? Sets people free, right? That's the approach that she gives. Not come up here and face me and I'm going to take you down, but I'm going to set you free. And notice how it picks up on the whole concept of the, you know, the the, the enchantment that comes across him, the wonder that he feels. Um, remember where he ends his speech, right? With his hunger dire and blinding thirst, right? Um, he ceases to be uh, persuasive, he ceases to be rationalizing, he ceases to be rational and just becomes appetite-driven, right? I burn with this thirst, I must slake it even if briefly, right? Perhaps, perhaps, consuming you in some sort of horrible metaphorical and probably sexual sense um, is uh, uh, in some sense going to slake his thirst. Um, and we see her giving him rest, right? Um, notice the emphasis on is on the eyes of Morgoth and on the Silmarils, right? And as Morgoth's, as the light in Morgoth's eyes dim as he is enchanted and falls into his enchanted slumber, the Silmarils wake up, right? Um, she's setting the Silmarils free. They were hoping to be released, right? We saw in that passage earlier on, um, and they are being their light is being released. But Morgoth is also being released, in a sense, briefly, right? Less briefly, though, probably, than the whole thirst-slaking thing he had in mind. Um, 
um, or even the tissue stomping afterwards. Um, but uh, but anyway, yeah, she 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 does, and then notice the parallel again, right? We've already had the the disturbing foot stomping parallel between her and Fingolfin, the metaphor used for Morgoth as he falls off his throne, right? The dark and mighty head was bowed like mountain top beneath a cloud, the shoulders foundered, the vast form crashed as an overwhelming storm, huge cliffs in ruin slide and fall. Remember his foot that's like a rooted hill, right, upon Fingolfin, um, and now we see that hill, you know, that mountain uh, of Morgoth um, just crumbling, right, in ruin, sliding and falling. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, good. Joyce uh, Sturgeo points out that, again, we get that glimpse of the light of heaven that will eventually hearten Sam. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The light against the dark cloud, storm, thunder, and reek. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, of course, you know, with the... So we've got Luthien and we've got the Silmarils um, as the, the light and the darkness and the Silmarils responding to her. Um, uh... Yeah. Oh, uh, Roy uh, uh, asks a great question. Roy and Corey Karlinski says, how do we understand the phrase heaven's mine? Aren't we in hell? Yes, but it's not yet the li- it's not anymore the literal hell, right? It's not a metaphysical hell. It's now just a metaphorical hell, right? Um, and heaven is also not metaphysical, um, but it refers to the sky. Uh, at least that's how I take it. So, um, uh, escaping upwards, clear to shine, glistening, marvelous in heaven's mind, me among the stars, right? Um, the light of the Silmarils. Um, okay, so just going back, looking at just tracing that sentence there, which starts on line forty ninety. Their will wavered, their fire failed. This is his eyes now, and as beneath his brows they paled, the Silmarils like stars were kindled that in the reek of earth had dwindled, escaping upwards, clear to shine, glistening marvelous in heaven's mind. That's all a simile, right? The Silmarils are kindled like stars. What kind of stars, or stars under what circumstances? Here's what the Silmarils were like. They were like stars, which, down in the reek of earth, that is, when they were still rising up, but they were close to earth, so there was like clouds and, you know, maybe smog, right? Maybe it's like evening in L.A. or something, and, and you've got the stars so you can barely see them below the horizon, right? Because they're, 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 uh, they, they have dwindled in the reek of earth, right? The earth is setting off all this you know, this uh, fluvia into the sky, which is blocking the light of the, dimming the light of the stars still there, right? The light of the stars still there, but, but dimmed, right, behind all this stuff. But then as they escape upwards and rise up, they become clearer and clearer um, until they're finally glistening marvelous in heaven's mind, which is the metaphor that he's using uh, for the stars, a very sort of dwarfish metaphor, uh, uh, similar to the language, doesn't use that same phrase, but similar to the, the kind of language that... Uh, um, is used in chapter one of the Hobbit when Bilbo was under the dwarfish enchantment, uh, hearing their song. Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, Roy, it does make us think about how they've been sort of mined from Varda's lights. Yes, they are um, uh, like the gems of the uh, you know like the, the 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 precious things of the dwarves are mined from the earth. Um, and uh, sort of treasured and made beautiful by the dwarves. So have the Silmarils been mined from uh, from Varda's light? Now it's the light of the trees, not directly the light of the stars, but... Anyway. 
you can sort of see how that works. So that whole thing's a simile. Those last three lines um, are uh, in that paragraph are describing the Silmarils are all a simile, but it's it's uh, it does show how their light is being released, right, and how their um, their light is being um, is 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 shining forth in response to her song and in response to their liberation, right? As the will of Morgoth is being quenched uh, and as he is uh, sliding into sleep, um, they are being. Uh, set free. And of course, Kate, exactly as you point out, one of them, of course, does in fact literally become a star. In fact, the evening star, which rises up from the horizon amidst the reek of the earth, right? Uh, and yeah, exactly. Right. So we have a little bit of foreshadowing here. Um, uh, the other thing, keep in mind, um, this is uh, the last release from bondage moment we get in this poem, as far as it's been, right? And we get here, I think, clearly a parallel with Mandos. Um, this is the greatest thing that Luthien has accomplished, but it's not the greatest song she'll ever sing. There will be another time when she is facing a uh, very intimidating divine figure, um, and she has to turn him and uh, you know, sort of change his mind about... I mean, her song before Mandos is an even greater accomplishment. Um, and, uh, and of course, there she's not going to be releasing Mandos himself from bondage, but of course, rather Baron himself and the release from bondage. Baron's release from the bondage in Mandos, the release that release from death, um, would seem to be the biggest, you know, finally the apex of the release from bondage idea. Though, as I've said, I, I actually I don't think that's really where it's going to end up. Um, I think that in the end, um, and again, I would have loved to see it. But I think that where they go at the end, um, thinking about release from mortality, release from immortality, um, I think that both of those things were going to kind of come together in the, um, you know, in the sort of the after career of Baron and Luthien. Would have loved to see that, see what he did with that. But anyway, um, okay. Um, yeah. Josiah says, given the Luthien Fingolfin parallel, should Lorien really have been the one to face Morgoth instead of Tolkas? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, Josiah can imagine that, right? Like in the Silm Film Project, if you know, Lorien pipe up and be like, I have an idea, and be, you know, Tolkas be like, please, pretty boy, leave this to me. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. But anyway, um, okay. Um, well, again, I mean, I could speculate about where the poem is going, but of course, we don't really know. Um, uh, and um, you know, there's only so much we can guess. But again, I, to me, the clearest indicator of where we're going is the overarching theme, right? The, that release from bondage theme, <clears throat> and exactly how we see that being emphasized—not just in the obvious and 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 and, and literal release from bondages that we get, um, but this more this more metaphorical sense, and how that's likely to relate to death, and the major... Remember, like, a whole canto was spent with them debating, like, hey, you're mortal, you know, I'm immortal, and you don't understand, and this is how it's like for me, and... I, I mean, that whole stanza seems to me so clearly a setup for where they're going to be later on, um, when the whole resurrection issue arises and why they do it and what they do and what happens and how they feel about it afterwards and all that kind of thing. Um, though, as I say, I don't really know exactly where he was going to, uh, where, where he was going to end up. Um, 
Uh, yeah, Arthur, you see, exactly. That, because it's not just the release from Mandos, but then the release from the circles of Arda itself, right? The, the escape from death and the escape from deathlessness. Um, yeah, I, 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 I definitely, that's, that's exactly where I see it going. That's kind of the central play that I would imagine happening uh, at the end. But anyway, um, all right. Uh, let's move on to the last two sections of the book. Um, and that is first. I want to I want to talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis's commentary because it's awesome fun. Um, so let's talk about C.S. Lewis's commentary. Um, general notes about this, and you know, and I'm sure you know, th- th- uh, you know, this is uh, uh, you know nothing. So, but I want to make sure everybody understands the context because there's a lot kind of taken for granted here. Um, the tone of the whole tone of the commentary, the whole tone and structure of the commentary, is a big fat inside joke between Lewis and Tolkien. An inside joke. It's this is a play on medieval scholarship, not just literary scholarship, but specifically medieval scholarship, in particular uh, medieval textual scholarship, with its emphasis on different manuscript versions. Because of course, when you read medieval literature. It is not as simple. Modern literature people never get this, right? They they don't know how easy they've got things. Um, uh, but uh, but anyway, you know, because you have like a text, you you can find you can you can hold a copy of the first edition text, right, and say like here here's the original, here's here's the thing. Even go back and and find the papers of the author and say here's what he. But no 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 no. Now in the Middle Ages, you just have these different manuscripts which have been copied at different times by different people. None of them are the same, right? So to say like, you know, even to say here's Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and let's read it, right? It's not as simple as that, right? Which Chaucer's Canterbury Tales? There are a whole bunch of manuscripts, and they're wildly different from each other. How can you tell what Chaucer really wrote and what he intended it to look like? Now, the Canterbury Tales is a particularly vexed example because it seems to be unfinished and so probably wasn't even in the final form that Chaucer meant, which makes it more complicated. But anyway... So that's sort of the world. So when 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 medieval scholars um, are talking about uh, texts and 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 looking for the sort of the real or the authentic reading, what did the poet actually write? Not you know. So let's try to figure out of the variants. What is just a scribal error? Like did the scribe just mess it up, or did 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 the person who copied it, you know, the, did, did the scribe or or even the patron say no? Let's change that bit. I want to do a different thing. So, no. so how can we try by comparing these manuscripts to each other? How can we find what the real authentic reading is? Um, and that's what he's doing. So all those letters, right? The you know the the P K L J or the you know the the P R K J H. Uh, uh, you know he's talking about that. That's the 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 traditional approach in medieval scholarship is to name each of the manuscripts by a letter. Um, so, so when he says, uh, just to give an illustration here, um, when he talks about, so this is the, um, um, the passage, this is the passage in the poem that Lewis would have been reading. Their thingle in the thousand caves whose portals pale that river laves is Galjuin that fairies call in many a tall and torchlit hall a dark and hidden king did dwell. And the word tall is the one that he that Lewis is commenting on here, right? And he says, thus P-R-K-J-H, right? L vast. So, okay, so there are these five manuscripts that all have the word tall. But the L manuscript says vast, many a vast in Torchwood Hall, right? And so then he comments on the conclusions that, uh, that, uh, that different sc- previous scholars have made to try to figure out what is the real... 
uh, authentic reading of this passage. Do we go with L, even though L is in the minority compared to the others? But we sometimes there's reason to believe that the minority uh, 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 passage actually uh, is. You have more reason to think it's authentic than than the majority, which can all just be copying off each other, right? All these, uh, I mean, it's it's very complex. But this is the world that Lewis is sort of joking about, and this is again this is the world that Lewis and Tolkien both lived in. Uh, so, uh, um, so they, uh, um, uh, this is, and yeah, and Serking, this is like, it's, it's, it's incredibly nerdy, right? I mean, the, the, the geekiness level of this commentary is absolutely off the charts. I mean, completely off the charts. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay. <laughs> so, um, so, and Nancy, I agree. It is really charming how Lewis does this. Um, of course there are moments when, it, it might uh, strike you as really harsh, right? I mean, it sounds like Lewis is being terribly harsh in some places. Um, one other thing to just sort of note on the side here is that that was very typical. In 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 writing that way, he is imitating the standard style of critics of this school. Um, I mean, I got to tell you, as a you know, when I was in graduate school in the very late 20th century and around the turn of the millennium, um, reading old... I mean, you read, like, scholarship from the last 10, 15 years, and then go back and read early scholarship, like in Lewis and Tolkien's period, they held nothing back. I was always... I'm always kind of astounded. I mean, if you talked like that about another modern scholar, you'd probably get sued nowadays. Um, they were much less squeamish. They spoke their minds <laughs> about what their colleagues had to say about these. And I, 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 I you know, I'm not 100% sure why that sort of cultural shift, but I mean, boy, people are so, people use kid gloves most of the time when they're like, well, you know, I must respectfully disagree with my learned colleague, and I would suggest rather, although you could think about it that way, I would suggest that this is an alternative way to look at it. That's how a modern scholar would talk, right? Um, but no, they they absolutely they were savage at times uh, in the way that the tone that they use. So um, it's um, the 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 the. In, in the, the places where he sounds really harsh, he's just using, again, the language that he and Tolkien both were completely steeped in. And it's one of the reasons why you can hear both of them, um, both Lewis and Tolkien, when you hear them talking about other people's work or themselves even, or each other, and they, they will sometimes use really, really harsh language. That's That was totally normal for them back then. Um, but Okay, so... So we see what, what Lewis is doing here. And then he goes on, Schick's complimentary title of internal rhyme for these cacophonies does not much mend matters. The poet of the jest knew nothing of internal rhyme, and its appearance, so-called, is an infallible mark of corruption. Pumpernickel. Uh, but CF 209 and 413, right? Um, so our commentary points out a dispute between two earlier uh, 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 scholars, Schick and Pumpernickel, um, uh, who have disagreed about whether or not in, uh, the poet deliberately uses internal rhyme pumpernickel will have nothing to do with it. Um, and, um, uh, okay, so um, I think, you know, although again, it, it might be, I think sometimes people, when reading this, sort of fixate on how harsh Lewis sort of sounds, even sort of through the, the you know, the sort of fictional frame that he's created here. But I have to admit, I also find it kind of, find his usage of this frame, uh, at least at moments, delightfully self-deprecating. 
right? Because he's putting... Uh, sometimes he's putting his harsh commentaries in the mouths of these fatuous and pretentious critics that he's invented, right? Um, uh, but even when he's not, even when he's sort of speaking in his own fictional voice here as another one of the scholars of the, of, of the jest, um, the fact that he puts himself in their company, he's one of them, right? He might not be pumpernickel, but he's kind of pumpernickel-ish, right? Uh, so um, it's like the, you know, the, 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 the way in which he pokes fun of these other scholars and even of this whole apparatus um, I think it is sort of a, a, a clear invitation to sort of take what he's saying with a grain of salt, right? Um, you know, if you disagree with what I'm saying, you know, don't forget, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm right here shoulder to shoulder with Schick and Pumpernickel, right? Um, so anyway, I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's really, in the end, I find the whole thing incredibly sweet. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, this is a, this isn't just a, 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 a neat example too, of just sort of showing his method, right? Um, cause we have to do translation. What is, what is Lewis saying here? What is this, all, what does this all come down to? Um, if he were just writing comments in the margin, like an editor or something, making a criticism, just a direct sent- one-sentence criticism, what's his criticism here? What's his point about that line? And you see what this all, this business about the uh, uh, the appearance of internal rhyme is an infallible mark of corruption. Um yeah, Nancy, yeah, he doesn't like that tall rhymes with hall. Uh, it, well, yeah, he thinks the internal rhymes are forced. Um, you know, so the one-sentence translation would be, avoid internal rhyme. I don't like that effect. You know, I, I think that that effect is really cacophonous, right? It doesn't strike the ear well in those moments. Um, and then, you know, by saying, but CF 209 and 413, he's pointing out two other examples. Right of when it happens with tidings of Lord Egnor's band and where their hidings in the land, the hidings and tidings uh, uh, business. Um, she fed that fay of garments gray. Um, you know there are some other examples of it. Um, be careful, be careful about this. And yeah, yeah, exactly, Kate. The internal rhyme with all the couplets it can easily become really sort of sing song or or, or cacophonous. I mean, it, it, it can really strike a sour note. Um, so he's just pointing out and saying, careful about that. But instead, he, he makes this whole elaborate joke about it, like it's clearly it's a sign of corruption. You also, of course, you see the implicit uh, compliment in the context of all of that, right? If there is a blemish, if there's anything he doesn't like, it's not to say that, Tolkien, you wrote a bad line. It's evidence that clearly the, the real intention of the author was good, right? It shows that any of the parts that are bad are clearly not authentic, Right, we can prove it's it's evidence that it isn't what the poet really meant. Right, uh, so even even that in the in this that's why I say it's it's really sweet. The whole thing is really sweet, um, really sweet in an incredibly dorky uh, and um, and at time quite savage sounding way. Um, but uh, but I think is really nice. Uh, a, a few other points that I would highlight, uh, just uh, sort of favorite moments uh, from Lewis's commentary. Note that he didn't like Melilot's dad either. Um, this is his commentary on the opening eight lines um, of the poem, which plainly in the version that he read was m- sticking much closer to that A text, to that original story. Um, 
Uh, okay, meats were sweet. This is, uh, this is the reading of P.R.K. Let anyone believe, if he can, that our author gave such a cacophony. J. His drink was sweet, his dish is dear. L. His drink was sweet, his dish was dear. Many scholars have rejected lines 1 through 8 altogether as unworthy of the poet. They were added by a later hand to supply a gap in the archetype, says Peabody, and adds the more, the more melodious movement and surer narrative stride of the passage beginning with line 9, but fairer than are born to men, should convince the dullest that here and here only the authentic work of the poet begins. I am not convinced that H, which had better be quoted in full, does not give the true opening of the jest. That was long since, in ages old, when first the stars in heaven rolled, there dwelt beyond Broceliand, where loneliness yet held the land, a great king comely under crown, the gold was woven in his gown. Um, I, I'm not even going to read the whole thing. First, because I'm running out of time, and second, because I find Lewis's verse quite cacophonous. Uh, one thing that I think is very queer, almost painfully queer, from reading this, um, from putting Lewis's poetry right next to Tolkien's poetry, seeing the two of them writing parallel passages describing the same thing. It is... So, yeah, Nancy says, man, Tolkien is a much better poet than Lewis. Yeah, Tolkien's ear is so much better. So much better. Lewis's ear... I love the ideas of Lewis. Lewis's poems are sort of fun to think about, but they're not fun to read. Um, uh, I find them so clanky uh, and uh, and forced. Um, I, 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 I lay piled with gold in gleaming grot. Lay piled with gold in gleaming grot. And, uh, of copper, many a drinking horn, dear purchased from shy unicorn. Um, in a... Uh, no, no. Yeah, exactly, Kate. It's the sense of rhythm. That's what I, uh, More than anything else, it's the rhythm. It, he just... He seems to have, uh, as the traditional saying is, seems to have a tin ear uh, for rhythm, whereas Tolkien's ear is so sensitive. Um, uh, but, um, but yes, Josiah, it is... Lewis's version is more whimsical, isn't it? And one of the interesting things that I think we can conclude from this is... Um, Although he hates, you know, Kelligorm, Meloat's dad, uh, here at the beginning. Um, uh, so this is clearly in an earlier stage where Tolkien hadn't cleaned that up yet. And again, you can see the whole first paragraph translates to, consider cutting lines one through eight, right? Um, um, but anyway, um, we can also see, notice that, like, with the unicorn coming in, and, and I agree, Josiah, the sort of the whimsicality of it... Um, that it's uh, clearly in Lewis's mind, we're moving in this sort of fantastical elfin direction. This is not, uh, this is not the, uh, uh, the, when he shifts those early lines, which, as we were describing, sound like they're describing, as we were talking about, when we were talking about Alyssa House Thomas's theory, um, they sound like they're describing a medieval king, not really a king of fairy at all. Lewis is already pushing in saying those lines really need to go, or at least they really need to be reconsidered. We see him pushing them in a more kind of magical direction, right? With unicorns and all that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, anyway, okay. Um, <laughs> Kate uh, Neville wonders if uh, Lewis's tendency to emphasize the whimsical effects pushed Tolkien away from it entirely. Right? If, if Tolkien read this and was like, uh, you're right, I'm cutting that. <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, Karina says, I wonder how polite Tolkien was when responding to this verse. In person to Lewis? I don't know. Um, uh, but, like, what did he say to himself? What did he exclaim when reading it? Well, we have some evidence about that, right, in certain places. And if there are some places where his reaction was so strong, he actually wrote something down to express it. I can only imagine how many times Tolkien LOL'd uh, while reading some of Lewis's uh, suggestion, or facepalmed, perhaps. Um, but, um, okay, anyway, um, uh, let's keep going. So here's, uh, this is, uh, I find this one a fascinating passage, the personification dispute. So, okay, so here's um, Tolkien's lines here at the beginning that he's that Lewis is responding to. Then stared he wild in dumbness bound at silent trees, deserted ground. The dizzy moon had, was twisted gray in tears, for she had fled away. Uh, uh, and then the reference to the wind dies and the starry choirs later on. Okay, so he says, uh, Lewis says, thus in PR. P-R-K-J. The Latinized adverbial use of the adjective in wild and the omitted articles in the line in the next line are suspicious. Right here, he's talking by Latinized. Um, he does. He's not referring to to etymology. He's referring to syntax. Um, so you know, this is a, this is a, this is a Latinate kind of usage. Uh, Lewis is arguing here, and therefore he doesn't think it quite fits um, the overall sort of tone. Um, talk about your criticisms that. <laughs> most modern critics wouldn't make. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's that the point he's making. So then he gives his alternatives, right, uh, in, in the L manuscript. But wildly Baron gazed around on silent trees and empty ground, the dizzy moon, etc. Peabody supplies end. But the monosyllabic foot is quite possible. Notice his commentary uh, is a, a, a sort of editorial scholarly commentary on the fake <laughs> text that he suggested, right? Um, anyway, okay. H text, uh, but wildly barren gazed around, emptied the tall trees stood, the ground lay empty, a lonely moon looked gray upon the untrodden forest way. I prefer H, because it gets rid of the conceit, it is little more, about the moon. This sort of half-hearted personification is, of course, to be distinguished from genuine mythology. Um, so, talk about the half-hearted conceits. Remember, he's referring to the dizzy moon was twisted gray in tears, right? So it's like, okay, it's one thing to do mythology, right, and to actually say that the moon is a person and is responding in some way, but merely to poetically personify the moon, right, and say that the moon is twisted in, is, is twisted in, like the moon is weeping, right? It's, it's just half-hearted, right? It doesn't really fit. You should either go full-on mythology or you should just, or you, should, you shouldn't, shouldn't go there, right? That's what he's saying. And then Christopher points out, um, uh, against this, my father scribbled on Lewis's text, Not so! The moon was dizzy and twisted because of the tears in his eyes! Nonetheless, he struck the two lines out heavily in the typescript, and I have excluded them from the text. Um, so here we see Tolkien saying, even actually writing out, right? Lewis, you idiot, you're totally misreading those lines, right? That moon isn't crying... Baron is crying. Right? It's it's in Baron's tears because his eyes are full of tears. The moon looks twisted, right? So when it's twisted in tears, it's not the moon's tears. It's Baron's tears, right? So 
basically Tolkien is saying, you know, Lewis, come on, man. Like, you totally misunderstood what I was saying there. But notice, he takes it out anyway, right? Um, I suspect because he's saying, all right, well, that's not what I was saying at all, but if Lewis missed that, then it's probably not clear, so I should probably not say that. Um, uh, so I think that that's... Uh, that's it's 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 interesting to see that kind of coming, and of course, um, as Christopher Tolkien mentioned in his um, uh, in in uh, Carpenter Humphrey Carpenter had cited some of the commentary uh, Lewis's commentary and said casually, I think it was in the biography or was it in the Inklings? I'm forgetting which one. One of the one of Carpenter's two magisterial works um, had sort of uh, not flippantly. I won't accuse Carpenter of being flippant, but um, had said. Um, that you know, Tolkien didn't adopt any of you know, and any of Lewis's suggestions, uh, and it's quite plain that that is not so. And of course, Christopher even points out that uh, Carpenter took that back and he revised that in a later edition um, because it's clear that uh, Tolkien was influenced. So let's um, let's look at that. Uh, uh, what I think is the most striking example of Lewis influencing Tolkien. Um, my subtitle here, Influencing a Bandersnatch, is about a, 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 a favorite quotation from Lewis. Um, uh, in response to... I think, am I remembering context right? It was in response to a, a report. Somebody was asking about influencing Tolkien, right? Do you think your writings have had a, a significant influence on Tolkien? Um, and he responded by saying, I don't think anything could influence Tolkien. You might as well try to influence a Bandersnatch. Uh, and, of course, Lewis is quoting, well, adapting a quotation uh, from Through the Looking Glass when the White King says, uh, just of something which was in, which is impossible to do, he says, you might as well try to catch a Bandersnatch. Um, and uh, so, so, so Lewis says of Tolkien, you might as well try to influence a Bandersnatch. Tolkien was never influenced by anybody, Lewis says. Um, but, of course, we can, in fact, see him influencing the Bandersnatch in this passage, and not only in any passage, in the central, in the Tenuviel, Tenuviel passage of all places, right? So, okay, the original reading. His voice, such love and longing fill, one moment stood she touched and still, one moment only, but he came, and all his heart was burned with flame. That's the reading of the poem that Lewis was given by Tolkien. His comment. The historic present is always to be suspected. The second verse is hopelessly corrupt. Touched, in this sense, is impossible in the language of the jest. And if the word were possible, the conception is fitter for a 19th century drawing room in narrow throat than for the loves of heroes. <laughs> Ouch! Oh, man! Uh, so, uh, and, and, but both of those criticisms seem to me very just, right? The first, the first, uh, the first point that he makes you shifted tenses there in that first line. His voice, such love and longing, fill. And then one moment stood she, um, but he came and all his heart was burned. Why are you using the historic present in line 741 when you shift back to the past right away? Right? That's his observation, number one. Number two, um, touched, seriously? She stood there touched, like, I'm so touched. Right? And he's like, A, that's totally out of like that vocabulary is totally out of keeping in this poem, and B, it's horrible, even if you could use it, um, but you can't. Don't go there. So he suggests his alternative, another piece of Lewis poetry to substitute in. 
right? And clear his voice came as a bell, whose echoes wove a wavering spell, Tenuviel, Tenuviel. Such love and longing filled his voice, that one moment without choice, one moment without fear or shame, Tenuviel stood, and like a flame, he leapt toward her as she stayed, and caught and kissed that elfin maid. That's Lewis's suggestion. And Tolkien changes it to his voice such love and longing filled back up here. His voice such love and longing filled, one moment stood she, fear was stilled, one moment only, like a flame he leaped towards her as she stayed, and caught and kissed that elfin maid. He leaped towards her as she stayed, and caught and kissed that elfin maid. The couplet that describes Baron catching Luthien is Lewis's couplet. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And I have to tell you, this is the one place that line and caught and kissed that elfin maid. Um, I never liked that line. <laughs> I'm going to complain and be like, look at the place where he adopted Lewis's suggestion. Yeah, it was a terrible idea. I'm not going to really say that, but but I have to admit that I had... Before I read the commentary, I always found that line odd. And caught and kissed that elfin maid sounds much more nursery rhyme-ish than most of Tolkien's verses do. Um, um, I don't know why, but that line always reminded me of, of like, the house that Jack built. You know, anyway. Um, <laughs> that Jack built. I, I made it funny. Anyway, um, instead it's the couple that Jack wrote. Uh, Jack was C.S. Lewis's nickname. Um... But uh, and Josiah, yes, that's where the missing rhyme for flame went. Exactly. That's that. That so he he kept this, but uh, it's it's we saw we we noticed how there's no rhyme for flame, right? We have a we have a missing we have a a corrupt uh, couplet, a corrupt distich, uh, as uh, as 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 Christopher calls it. Absolutely. Um, anyhow, and caught and kissed that elfin maid always sounded a little bit strange to me. Just the, the, the kind of the bounciness of it doesn't really seem to fit. It, it just struck me as different. And then the first time I read this, I was like, oh, yeah, that does sound more like this than that sounds like Tolkien. Um, but, um, um, but I... But anyway, it, it, it's adorable. I mean, isn't this adorable to see uh, and, and see that he does, in fact, uh, listen? And, and it's improved. I mean, that's... The second version, post Lewis's comments, is clearly better than the earlier version. Um, much better. One moment stood she touched and still is far inferior to one moment stood she fear was stilled. One moment only, like a flame, he leaped towards her as she stayed and caught and kissed that elfin maid. Um, uh, it's uh, it's yeah yeah um, exactly exactly. Um, Yes, Sarah King says Olson criticizes this verse as bouncy, nursery rhymish, and unworthy of the author. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty. That's always what I thought about that passage. I, I knew there must be a manuscript corruption at that point. Uh, I was I was really glad to see that confirmed. Um, okay, one last, one last, one last one, and then we'll move on. Um, and this is the place where we see him most pointedly breaking out into uh, commentary on Lewis's poetry. Hateful art thou, O land of trees, my flute shall finger shall finger no more seas, may music perish, that's the original reading, this is Diron, of course, clearly corrupt. 
H-J-L, O hateful land of trees, be mute. My fingers now forget the flute. Against this my father wrote, Frightful 18th century! But he reordered the second line to, My fingers the flute shall no more seize, and subsequently rewrote the passage to the form given in this. So he, he rewrote it to, Hateful art thou, O land of trees, may fear in silence on thee seize, my flute shall fall from idle hand, and mirth shall leave Beleriand. This is eventually where it ended up. Um, but it is, uh, I think that it's not just that Tolkien sort of makes fun of Lewis's verse here, but I think he completely nails it. Um, I, again, the first time I read this, I mean, I, I've read a bunch of Lewis's poetry. I mean, even if you don't read, even if you don't have his collected poems, you can read a bunch of his poetry in uh, uh, in Pilgrim's Regress, for instance. He includes a lot of his poetry there. Um, it's the most poetry-filled book that Lewis wrote, uh, other than his collected poems. Um, but I, 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 I had uh, I'd never been able to articulate what I disliked about his uh, uh, his 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 poems, and but I frightful eighteenth century it just absolutely nails it. Um, oh, hateful land of trees, be mute! My fingers now forget the flute. Um, that's very not that all eighteenth century poetry is frightful, but. When 18th century poetry is frightful, it's frightful in precisely that way. Um, yes, Roy, it's the bounciness of the IMs there. My fingers now forget the flute. And the, f- the, the, the forcing of mute and flute, right? Oh, hateful land of trees, be mute. My fingers now forget the flute. Like, neither one of those things. Like, trees be mute, nor, nor uh, my fingers, now forget the flute. Neither like, Nobody talks like that. Right? I mean, there's no, not that Tolkien's verse is always in, like, perfectly natural and conversational language, but um, the kind of, the, the sort of uh, torture of things to sort of get things to not only come out to the rhymes in the way they are, in, in, in the way that the rhymes fall, but to have the IMs be perfect as well. Um, it's uh it's all it's kind of uh <laughs> it's it's kind of horrible um yeah yeah and so notice how even the choice of mute and flute as the end rhymes and how tolkien stays way away from that right trees seas that's good enough right he's not going to do mute flute um uh right exactly Carita. now tolkien sticks with much more dignified lines like Oh, the hoot, oh, the hoot, how he trillips on his flute. Far more dignified. Um, Oh, the hoot, being perhaps the most inspired line of poetry that Tolkien ever composed, and he did. The the song of Tin Fang Warble. Um, Anyway, totally different oral effect Tolkien's going for there. All right, anyway, okay, uh, enough. Uh, I'm I'm, uh, totally indulging myself here now. Um... Let's look briefly, I mean, we're not going to look in much detail, but let's look briefly at The Lay of Lathian Recommenced, when Tolkien comes back to this in 1950. To me, the most fascinating and suggestive thing about this whole effort, the whole Lay of Lathian Recommenced that Christopher Tolkien gives us here, um, is the chronology of it. The fact that, as Christopher Tolkien says, the, the evidence of the paper on which it's written and everything suggests that this is the first thing he turned to when he so as soon as Tolkien finishes the Lord of the Ring, you know, when he 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 pushes 
the manuscript uh, of the Lord of the Rings aside, or perhaps he pushes against it and pushes his chair back because it's so big. But anyway, when he distances himself somehow or other uh, from the manuscript of the Lord of the Rings and turns himself to do something else, the first thing he does is come back and start rewriting the Lay of Lathian. That is, to me, fascinating. That is very cool. Um, his, his first impulse is not to go back and to revise the Quinta, right? You'd think it might be, right? Think about, for instance, how his mythology has developed during the War of the Rings, right? During the course of the writing of the War of the Rings, so many ideas that he'd been kind of toying with get worked out much more clearly. Um, uh, is that it's, you know, A lot has happened in the world of his mythology. I would think, I mean... If I didn't know anything about it and I were asked to guess, okay, as soon as Tolkien finished The Lord of the Rings, what's the first thing he wrote? That's what I would have guessed. I would have been like, well, surely his first impulse would have been, okay, now before I forget, i got, I, I got to organize this stuff. right? i got to go back and make, make a new sketch of an outline for the Quinta to sort of show the new ideas about the First Age right, and how it connects with the Third Age and all the stuff that I've worked out in doing The Lord of the Rings. Um, but that's not what he did. Right? Um, instead, he says... Oh, there's that poem I never finished, right? I want to do that poem again. But of course, what does he do? He does the Tolkien thing, right? He doesn't say, okay, I was halfway through Canto 14. Let's finish Canto 14 and keep going. No. He says, let's go back to Canto 1 and rewrite the whole thing from the beginning, right? And thus doesn't even get as far as he had gotten before. Um, But uh, anyway, so um, one conclusion that I think we can clearly draw here is that... um, this poem, The Lay of Lathian, is plainly not suffering the fate of the Lay of the Children of Hurin. By which I mean, remember how the Lay, of, how we were seeing how the Lay of the Children of Hurin gets kind of overtaken by the Lay of Lathian, right? He's sort of drawn away from, uh, you know, and we can see his like steady uh, and continual seduction by the story of Barrett and Luthien, right? He wants to write that, and he's doing it more and more, and then finally just says, "Forget it. I'm just going to do it," right? Um, it's plain that his mind was wandering, that his desire was shifting. He didn't want to finish the way of the children of Hurin. He wanted to do the, Baron, the story of Baron and Luthien instead. Um, that's obvious even from the later text of the way of the children of Hurin. That is not, that's not what happened. So why did he finish the way of Luthien? Obviously not because he lost interest in it, right? Um, and that is uh, very evocative, evocatively shown by the fact that he jumps right back into it as soon as he uh, gets the Lord of the Rings out uh, and finished. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, that the, my, my first and biggest overall uh, uh, sort of observation or conclusion uh, from the the Lay of Lathian re- recommenced is definitely that, um, and uh, yes, yeah, as Steve Holly points out, considering that he put their their you know the names of Baron and Luthien on uh, on uh, his gravestone, you know his and his wife's gravestone, um, you know makes certainly makes it obvious how how important the story was to him. Um, yeah, yeah, no question. But again, it's not just the story, right? I mean, it is the story. But it's the poem, too, right? He could have just sat down and said, okay, I want to do... You know, he, he could have been... He could have just written a prose version, but no. He went back to revisit the poem itself. And I think that's, that's part of the interesting thing. Because, again, he never goes back to the alliterative uh, lay of Children of Hurin, right? That just doesn't come up again. Um, he does a prose version instead. Um, the 
the story of Turin, which gets into the unfinished tales, um, the the you know the Narni he and Hurin, the the uh, you know the, the story of the uh, of the children of Hurin. Um, he goes back and does a long prose novelly version, not novella ish version of the Turin story, but he doesn't do that with Baron and Luthien, right? Instead, he goes back to the lay and continues the same poem in the same meter, right? Not identical, um, but still still very much the same project in the way that his prose Turin story is not the same project as The Way of the Children of Hurin, clearly. But, um, let's look at some interesting uh, just, this is not in any, this is not any uh, plan to be, to do a sort of a consistent reading or, or a, 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 um, a really thorough reading of the Lay of Lathian recommenced, but just uh, just cherry picking some interesting and suggestive passages that I th- that I found pretty cool. It really jumped out at me in reading it through this time. The description of Barahir's hideout. Such deeds of daring there they wrought that soon the hunters that them sought at rumor of their coming fled. Though price was set upon each head to match the wear guild of a king, no soldier could to Morgoth bring news even of their hidden lair. For where the highland brown and bare above the darkling plains arose of steep Dorthonian to the snows and barren mountain winds there lay a tarn of water, blue by day, by night a mirror of dark glass for stars of Elbereth that pass above the world into the west. Okay, so first of all, it's just kind of interesting that we get the description, right? That is... We didn't have any description before, so the fact that it, you know we were just told that it was really secret, nobody else knew where it was. Um, now we're getting a we're getting a description of it, and it's just, it's just really it's really lovely, right? This 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 tarn up in the mountains. <clears throat> but there's more, right? Once hallowed, still that place was blessed. No shadow of Morgoth and no evil thing yet thither came. A whispering ring of slender birches, silver-gray, stooped on its margin. Round it lay a lonely moor, and the bare bones of ancient earth like standing stones thrust through the heather and the whin. And there, by houseless Iluin, the hunted lord and faithful men under the gray stones made their den. Okay. Um... See what just happened there? Which I find really interesting. It's not just enough here. Barahir's hiding place is now no longer just a really top-secret hideout, right? It's now a sacred place. It's now a holy place. It's now the Tarn of Iluin, um, which featured in the Turin story. In fact, he's borrowed this from the Turin story. Remember all that? Biz- we got stuff like this. We got a passage like this in the Lay of the Children of Hurin. When, uh, when Turin is taken there um, by what's his name? Flinding. I was going to say Gwyndor, but it's not Gwyndor yet. By Flinding, right? He's taken there in the, in the healing of Turin, right? And we get all this description about how it's still sacred and almost still comes there and everything. And so there's, there's this sort of the presence of the, of the Valar, Right, um, that are in that place, and it's really important for the hewing of Turin, right? And it's it's all, it's, you know, it's, it's a big important moment. And he's taken that, and he's poached it for the Lay of Lathian, right? Um, 
Uh, so now, not only did he abandon uh, the lay of the children of Hurin for the lay of Lathian, he's now looting the corpse of the lay of the children of Hurin uh, and uh, um, and incorporating the stuff into this poem. But anyway, okay. Um, but but really cool. So notice how he's really stepping up the symbolism of Barahir and his band, right? That it's, you know, they were already the only holdouts, right? The only outlaws under the rule of King Morgoth uh, in the original poem. And, uh, you know, so they were, uh, you know, they were the only ones who were resisting the power of the evil king. Um, This makes it much more kind of metaphysical, right? Um, uh, Again, just to look back at the first page here. Um, Once hallowed, still that place was, it was actually a hallowed place. It was a sacred place. No shadow of Morgoth, and no evil thing yet thither came. The place that they choose is like a hallowed spot to the gods. Uh, you know, we see this much closer tie between Barahir and the Valar. We saw some evidence in the earlier poem that the Valar were being a little bit more proactive. Remember back in Canto 2 uh, and 3 when, um, you know, with Baron being gone and, and the, the implication that the fortune that happened to strike that Baron was away from the camp on the day that they were captured seemed to be perhaps not a pure chance, right? There was those, there, you know, that kind of language was there uh, in the original. Um, but um, but there's a much stronger element of that here, right? Where Barahir and his band are actually sheltering in this sacred, this holy place, um, this hallowed place. Um, and under, and so therefore, even at least indirectly, under the protection um, of the Valar. That seems to me a really interesting thing and a really important element, that if it's fair to draw this conclusion, the suggestion of that seems to me that the direction the poem is moving as he's revising it here is greater evidence of the um, sort of intervention of the Valar, right? of the Valar playing a role on the good guy's side here. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, more look at Gorlim. Here's Gorlim having been tricked and then captured. There now in anguish Gorlim lay, with bond on neck, on hand and foot, to bitter torment he was put, to break his will and him constrain, to buy with treason, end of pain. But not to them would he reveal of Barahir, nor break the seal of faith that on his tongue was laid, until at last a pause was made, and one came softly to his stake, a darkling form that stooped and spake to him of Ilanel, his wife. Wouldst thou, he said, forsake thy life, who with few words might win release for her and thee, and go in peace, and dwell together far from war, friends to the king? What wouldst thou more?' And Gorlim, now long worn with pain, yearning to see his wife again, whom well he weaned, was also caught in Sauron's net, allowed the thought to grow, and faltered in his troth. Boy, in this version, never was there a more reluctant traitor, right? I mean, how uh, how could you more uh, uh, sort of fence around the, the character of a traitor? Right. Um, I mean, 
short of saying Gorlim never betrayed Barahir, he does absolutely everything he possibly can to make Gorlim remain an admirable character, right? This is absolutely um, the at the opposite extreme of him coming to Morgoth with the plan of betraying Barahir. Maybe if I go him and offer to betray Barahir, he'll, you know, reunite me with Iwanel. Um... Uh, the 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 extreme lengths to which he goes to show that and, and then even even to the very end Gorlim never would have given in for his own sake right um uh he would not uh break the seal of faith that on his tongue was laid um not to him, to them would he reveal um and then but it's, it's that final temptation that he can't resist right that final doubt about if perhaps by speaking he could spare Ilanel pain. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Good. Kate points out that there's the neck again. Um, the bowed or chained neck is such a symbol of slavery or bondage. Yes. Yes, it is a very a very persistent symbol in Tolkien, and of course we see many times in this poem. Um, but notice also this shift I think makes the psychological torment of Gorlim more distant. It's a, it's a simpler situation here than it was before. <clears throat> Remember that the horror, the effect of the passage here, the effect of Gorlim's suffering and treason is entirely different. In fact, it's almost like Fingolfin, right? Um, Fingolfin's defeat. Yeah, he's beaten down and he's crushed, but man, he stood up till the end. Gorlim, like, he's like this close, man. He's like almost Fingolfin. He fails in the end, right? He falters and gives in. But man, is his stubborn courage admirable, right? I mean, that's kind of the effect that I get, anyway, from this passage. Um, But um, in the original one, remember, one of the effects of that was that um, that sort of horrible kind of uh, I want to call it an Oedipus moment um, like that what makes the real, the moment of realization to use the Greek word the moment of anagnorisis for, uh, for Oedipus <clears throat> uh, in Oedipus's story what makes that moment so horrible is not the unexpected shock I mean everybody including Oedipus has seen this coming right like every single character in the play has already said to him, stop asking questions. Walk away right now. You don't want to know. And Oedipus kind of knows that he doesn't want to go, but he can't resist it, right? Um, That sense of... It's not just like, oh, the horror, I killed my father and married my mother. Like, it's it's not the shock of the revelation that brings it home to Oedipus. What brings it home is like and I did it, right? It didn't have to be that way, but it was like my own, like, I am to blame for this, that, 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 and that's what he does in the original version with Gorlim, right? Um, when, and remember how Morgoth just digs in the knife with that one, right? And he's like, oh, pff, I don't know, man, I, you didn't see anything. It was just an accident. God, that sucks to be you. You came and betrayed it. It was just, you just like saw something and it was even, you. Boy, you must feel real dumb right now, right? Um, 
you know, and and so Gorlam, just that moment where Gorlam is like, oh, I've betrayed Barra here, and not only did I betray him for nothing, but gosh, I, I was, I mean, just the, the horribleness of that moment is of a very different kind than this, like, heroic failure that we see in Gorlam here. This is, this is moving. I, I'm, I'm touched, right? Like an, in, in a 19th century drawing room kind of way. Um, uh, it's, it's moving, but, but it's, it's, it's much simpler. It's much more straightforward. Um, I have to admit that although I, I admire the character of Gorlim much more in the second version, I find the psychological impact of the earlier version much more powerful. It is a little less clear, right? It's, it's more complicated. You kind of have to sit and unpack it a little bit more to get it in the earlier version than in this version, but... Um, I mean, like, you can easily come away from a first reading of, of the original version and be like, wait, so did Morgoth actually make that illusion or not? I don't get it, right? You kind of have to go back and be like, you know, he's... And then the narrator comes back and is like, well, people afterwards said he probably did, you know, and even that's kind of inconclusive. So this is much more direct and straightforward as a story, and it's it's therefore sort of clearer and more powerful, I guess, but, but I kind of miss the particular quality of that. I mean, I think that the... Uh, um, the thing that he was evoking in uh, with um, uh, with Gorlin before was uh, was was really cool. Baron's absence. <clears throat> okay, so Baron's absence. Remember, in the original version, that was where we got the narrator saying, like, so um, uh, Baron just happened to be, you know, by chance, Baron just happened to be away. But like, Morgoth isn't the only one at work here, right? So it's probably not 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 a coincidence. Instead, we get a whole farewell speech between Baron and Barahir, right? Son Baron then said Barahir, Thou knowst the rumor that we hear of strength from the Gaurhoth that is sent against us, and our food nigh spent. On thee the lot falls by our law to go forth now alone to draw what help thou canst from the hidden few that feed us still, and what is new to learn. Good fortune go with thee, in speed return, for grudgingly we spare thee from our brotherhood so small, and Gorlim in the wood is long astray or dead. Farewell. As Baron went, still like a knell, resounded in his heart that word, the last of his father that he heard. Baron gets to say goodbye to his dad in this version. Isn't that interesting? But notice there's more than that, right? This bit I really like, right? Um... It does, like, kind of undermine that whole, like, is it chance or is it fate, right? This It undermines that a little bit because here the question seems to me not, is it chance or is it fate, but rather, is it chance or was it his dad, right? Um, Bari here knows. He's, he, 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 he clearly fears the worst, right? Gorlim's been gone for a while. Hopefully he's dead, because it could be worse, right? He might have been captured. This could end uh, new strength from the Gaurhoth is sent, right? More orcs are coming our way. Things are looking really bad. We don't know where Gorlim is. I fear the worst. So he says to his son, Baron, one of us has to go out and try to get provisions for the camp. And of course, apparently it's their law that they draw lots. One of them goes by, by, by the drawing of the lots. Because um, they don't want to go out a bunch together because it'd be easier to track. Presumably. So um, so he says to by chance, right, by lot, um, the lot has fallen on you. Right? That could be still so still technically by chance that Baron is not there, right? 
but I wonder. Makes me kind of wonder, right? Uh, did Barry here rig that election, maybe? Um, uh, that uh, he knows that danger is coming, and so I, you know, Nancy, I'm, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think that Barry here might have cheated. I really do. So, son, unfortunately, the lot has fallen on you. You have to go out somewhere where you can, bu- and not be here where we may quite possibly be sitting ducks, what with Gorlim's absence and everything. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm implying that I think Barry here might have cheated here, and his, uh, you know, his saying farewell. To say, good fortune go with the um, farewell. Um, I think he's he's doesn't know, but <laughs> Nancy Foster considers this nepotism, yeah, sort of, yeah. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I, Kate, I agree. It can it can be read, read in multiple ways, right? It could uh, it could be Barry here rigging it. It could be just chance, right? Um, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Either way, either way is cool. Either way works. Um, um, but anyway, I, this is, this is uh, one of the, of all of the things that get added, this is that, 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 that was probably my favorite one. Uh, okay, no, this next one is my favorite one. And also the last one that I'm going to do. Um, after Baron, you know, the, the, his father and everybody else who get names in this version, all the rest of them get names. How cool is that? But anyway, they all die. Right, and Baron recovers the ring, right, like in the original version. But then we get this extra bit. But sorrow now his heart had wrought to fierce despair. No more he fought in hope of life or joy to or joy or praise, but seeking so to use his days only that Morgoth deep should feel the sting of his avenging steel. Ere death he found an end of pain, his only fear was thraldom's chain. Okay, so we got some of that before. Right, you know, we got that he uh, he he was fighting in despair, and he was only his only fear was thraldom, and he was being really brave. Vengeance wasn't quite so heavily emphasized, I think, in the other version. Um, but even more remarkable is what happens as a consequence: danger he sought, and death pursued, and thus escaped the doom he wooed. Escape and doom there in that same sentence, which is interesting. And deeds of breathless daring wrought alone, of which the rumor brought new hope to many a broken man. They whispered barren, and began in secret words to whet, and soft by shrouded hearths at evening oft, songs they would sing of Baron's bow, of Dagmore his sword, how he would go silent to camps and slay the chief, or trapped in his hiding past belief would slip away, and under night by mist or moon or by the light of open day would come again, of hunt of hunters hunted, slayers slain. They sang of Gorgal the butcher hewn, of ambush in Ladros, fire in Droon, of thirty in one battle dead, of wolves that yelped like curs and fled, yea, Sauron himself with wound in hand. Um Yeah, exactly, Karita. We see Baron becoming a folk hero. Um Remember, of course, throughout the story, we, Luthien is, you know, says that Baron is a big deal, right? In the published Silmarillion, she says, even in Doriath, we've heard the legends of Baron's deeds, right? So, you know, word about Baron has gotten around um, in uh, uh, in the in the later, and we saw how that was shifted. It was one of the things we emphasized in reading the original version of the poem. 
that compared to the tale of Tenuvio, where Baron had been wandering for a long time and he was far from home and everything, and you know he was tired, um, but he wasn't a you know, like a downtrodden heroic figure um, in the tale of Tenuvio in the Book of Lost Tales version. So we see how. Tolkien, in the first version of the poem, raises his stature um, and shows how he is, you know, forlorn and desperate and has this heritage of defiance of Morgoth and and all this stuff. But here we see him, um, uh, we see him increasing in, you know, that, that that's even, uh, Tolkien's pushing that even further in the revision, right? But more, even more. Notice the, uh, notice the foreshadowing here, right? Um, He remember that line in the published Silmarillion when after the story. Uh, so in the published Silmarillion, we get the tale of Baron and Luthien, and then we get the story of the near Nithornoidiad, and then we get the story of Turin Turinbar. That's how the that's how the chapters go. Um, so the setup for the tale of on number two. If you remember that 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 tale begins with Mithros who at that time lifts up his head, and he lifts up his head in new hope um, and is spurred to new action in that attempt to form that great alliance to, uh, you know, sort of the last great alliance among the, 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 the rulers of, you know, the elvish rulers of, of Beleriand there um, in order to try to stamp out Morgoth. Um, which, of course, as we know, didn't end well, but, um, but remember, why does Mithros do that? He is inspired by Baron and Luthien, right? When, um, when, when Baron and Luthien, when the other elves see that what Baron and Luthien accomplished, right, and how the two of them went, you know, alone to Angband and and recovered a Silmaril, that Sauron was not unassailable, right? Just as the wound in his foot from Fingolfin shows that he he does have weaknesses, right? Um, and uh, and helps sort of set up what Luthien is going to be able to do to him. Um, so their story inspires, you know, they're getting in the similar inspires Mithros, right? Now that doesn't end well, but um, uh, but again, we, then, then we've got the foreshadowing of Eärendil, right? And the star of the star of of, of high hope, Gil Estel, that rises um, and inspires the people, and we see people being inspired by Eärendil and the sign of the star, right? Um, yeah, Josiah says, so all Beleriand is released from the bondage of dread. Um, yes, yes. Um, I um, um, I do think that um, this is a kind of a foreshadowing in that way, right? So we can see the kind of hope that is being brought to the people by the example of Baron. Um, I, I think one thing that we can see here is sort of the widening of the focus of the story, but um, but I just, I love this vision. Um, it's one thing for Luthien to say, tales of his valor have come even to Doriath, right? That sounds kind of stale. Well, stale isn't the right word, but I don't know, clinical, right? This vision of downtrodden humans Right, who are living now under oppression, um, but are whispering Baron's name to each other, uh, and inspired perhaps to secret resistance, uh, you know, began in secret swords to wet, right, because of the example of Baron, the inspiration that he is to others. I, I, that's really cool. Um, um, 
I think really cool. And yeah, Kate, the wound to Sauron. How about that? Sauron himself uh, with wound in hand. I wonder if it was the same hand right? uh, that's later going to get its finger cut off uh, by Isildur. Um, uh, even, of course, a bit of foreshadowing there, right, of Sauron's wounded hand. Um, so Baron uh, Isildur being sort of the fulfillment of Baron, you know, tied with Baron himself. It's pretty cool, right? Thinking especially of Frodo's connection to Baron and how that's all tied together. It's really nifty, right? Um, how he brings uh, Baron in there um, with with Sauron. And again, remember, right after the Lord of the Rings, just finished the Lord of the Rings, right? So thinking of Sauron and his hand, we are now totally justified in thinking about the Ring of Power, right? And we couldn't think that way when we were looking at Thu back in the original poem. We can think that way here now. Um, yeah, Sarah Lagarde, exactly. Uh, 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 and Isildur, well, his dad is probably still, like the corpse of his dad is still probably wearing the Ring of Bari here, but it's there, right? Yeah, so again, there's there's that other connection with Baron. Um, uh, but notice even the fact that if Elendil, so either Isildur is wearing the Ring of Bari here, or Elendil is wearing the Ring of Bari here, and he's lying dead. In which case, Isildur is the son whose father is lying dead, killed by Sauron, with the Ring of Bari here on his hand, uh, uh, and and while he, Isildur, comes in and cuts this other ring off of the Sauron. Again, notice we still have Baron parallels there. So we're st- it's still all about Baron, right? Um, uh, so the the way he ties those together, I guess. Uh, Pretty nifty, pretty awesome. Okay, I'm going to let you go. I'm, uh, I've kept you over time here tonight already. Um, I hope you've enjoyed uh, uh, reading The Lays of Beleriand uh, with me. I have really enjoyed our discussions. Um, it's so much fun uh, to do Tolkien's poetry. It's been great fun to do Tolkien's poetry in, in, uh, in, in, in big doses um, like this. So um, uh, I... Uh, um, I, I Thank everybody for uh, voting for the Lays of Beleriand. That was great fun. And I hope you all remember to join me for Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Uh, we will begin that in two weeks. If you haven't read it, I, I strongly urge you to. Um, I don't know. I know that there are some people who are, um, uh, you know, who, who, who sort of come for the Tolkien uh, classes in uh, the uh, Mythgard Academy and don't always come to the non-Tolkien stuff that we often do in between. Um, so uh, I hope that uh, uh, I hope that, that that you will uh, come and join us. It, it, it'll be uh, uh, a, a fun and fascinating thing. I'm very interested uh, to talk about this. So um, I will see you guys in two weeks. So no class next week, and we'll start Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell first six chapters, again, chapters one through six uh, for two weeks from tonight. So thanks, everybody. Good night.